Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. Henry Kissinger famously said, you can't make war in the Middle East without Egypt and you can't make peace in the Middle East without Syria. I'm not sure the aphorism remains accurate. Both Middle Eastern nations and their global backers have, after all, found plenty of creative ways of making war. But that is not the job of aphorisms. They are a summary, a reminder, as are anniversaries. And this month is incredibly the 12th anniversary of the start of the conflict proper in Syria. My guest today teaches politics and international relations at Queen Mary University. He has written extensively on Syria and contributed to most reputable news outlets on the issue. Unusually for an academic, he has also lived in Syria. His definitive compendium, The Battle for Syria, International Rivalry in the New Middle East, has an updated edition out now. Welcome to The Bunker, Professor Christopher Phillips. Thank you for having me. Let's start with an update because Syria has not been in the news at all recently. What is the current status of the conflict? Well, it's not been in the news so much because thankfully there's been a lot less fighting than over the past decade. Things have settled into a familiar, if slightly miserable, pattern. Mm. Uh, The country is pretty much divided into three zones now. The largest zone by far is controlled by the regime of President Bashar Mm -hmm. al-Assad, against whom the rebellion that started the civil war uh, was launched. Uh, A fairly sizable area in the eastern part of the country uh, is controlled by American-backed Kurdish militia, or mostly Kurdish militia anyway, uh, who are running an autonomous area outside of Assad's control with American air support. And then you have a northern area, relatively small but quite densely populated, uh, which are the last areas controlled by the group that originally rebelled against Assad, who might call the rebels. Mm. Uh, And that's centered on the city of Idlib uh, and uh, various strips along the Turkish border. And those areas are officially uh, protected by Turkey, some directly right along the border uh, and some indirectly uh, around the town of Idlib. Um the rebel controlled areas is there administrative control fairly organized like is there a rebel government as it were is there is there someone to deal with yes but i'm afraid to say t- uh, syria is a very complex conflict so i'm now going to uh, pass those rebel areas into two okay so on the one wa- <laughs> so on the one hand we have the areas that are effectively directly controlled by Turkey. These are areas that Turkey specifically invaded to push the Kurdish forces Mm. (laughs) away because Turkey has a long uh, issue with Kurdish separatism and wanted the Syrian Kurds to be off its border. Those areas are governed by what we might call Turkey's proxies. They are Syrians. They are employed directly by the Turkish government. They were trained by the Turkish government. They're armed by the Turkish government. They are, in essence, satellites of Turkey. So yes, there is a a government there, but it is one that is very, very closely aligned with Ankara. In the other area, the area around Idlib, you do have a, a more independent rebel group. They are the remnants of the original rebellion. And they have an official government, but it is dominated by Islamists and Islamists who were historically aligned with Al-Qaeda, although they have subsequently disowned uh, their original affiliation with Al-Qaeda. Right. Uh, But there is a government of sorts there. 
Right, which sort of touches on my next question, because when the uh, huge earthquakes happened along that border, there were quite a few reports, mainly out of Idlib, saying that basically you, you, the international community couldn't funnel aid to those areas. They could kind of funnel aid to the bit that Turkey, I guess, is semi-governing. They could funnel aid towards, obviously, the the east bit and Assad, but there were pockets where basically aid couldn't get through, which seems to me to expose like a really fundamental flaw in whatever balance we've settled in there. Yes, the areas that were controlled just by, by the rebels, the Idlib rebels, uh, in order to get aid through there, you needed the approval of either Turkey uh, allowing aid um, to come through. And that was the aid that did come through. Mm. Uh, but Turkey was very slow to actually allow its border crossings to be open, mostly because it was distracted by its own yeah. um, crisis uh, around the, the earthquake. Or you had to cross the frontier between the Assad-controlled areas and the rebel-controlled areas. And the Assad government controls those uh, fr that frontier and was refusing to allow the aid convoys to go through or was basically demanding a lot in return and using the earthquake crisis uh, to get as much leverage from the international community mm. as possible, normally in the form of aid for itself. Now, let's put to one side Turkey and let's put to one side Russia, because they're very complicated and we'll come to them in detail, of the other international players that had become involved, who is still involved? Who is still considering this a priority is basically what I'm trying to well, not Western governments is mm. the key. It's interesting you mentioned Russia, and we can come to Russia mm. later. And we will. Um, but the, the other main stakeholder in the conflict is Iran. Mm. Uh, Iran, along with Russia, heavily backed Assad and helped to ensure his survival. Uh, and it really is still a, a huge priority for them. Uh, Assad isn't really in danger of falling anymore, as he was earlier in the war. Uh, but, uh, but Iran wants to make sure that there's no possibility of that in the future. In the updated edition of the book, the final section is titled The War That Everyone Lost, which I find actually really heartbreaking. What do you mean by that? Well, it is heartbreaking. And, and anyone that has been to Syria, either you know, before the war or, or, or since, will know it was uh, an incredibly vibrant and exciting and friendly place. One of them, even the, I seem to recall when I first went there, the Lonely Planet guidebook says, hostage to hospitality, that, you know, yeah. it's the kind of place where you would go mm. and uh, people would insist on taking you to their homes and giving you food and, and coffee and drinks and you know, for hours and hours on end, there's a huge curiosity in people and, and, and delight at being welcoming hosts. And it was a hugely culturally rich place. Uh, and whilst, of course, the people that still live there, I'm sure, are still like that, the country that hosted that has been shattered. Mm. So the country itself has been, you know, really destroyed and, and no one is better off. In, in that sense, if you think about Syrians themselves, uh, you then have the people that aren't still there. You've had half a million people have been killed, mm. which for a, a country with only a population of 23 million is an enormous number of people. Yeah. On top of that, half of the population have been displaced. Numbers vary, but six to seven million have fled the country altogether and now live as refugees. You know, a million or so are in Europe, but you've got 
you know, four million in Turkey. Yeah. You've got, you know, a million in Lebanon. And they're not living in, in great comfort. They're often in sort of shanty refugee camps or equivalent in a great deal of poverty. And But, but the reason I say that the war that everyone lost is that it, it's not just the domestic players that are in no better position than they were before. And they're not. You know, Assad mm. is still in control, mm. but he's running a weaker country. Uh, the Kurds have a degree of autonomy, but alongside that comes a lot of insecurity. They're terrified the Americans are going to leave one day and leave them subject to attack by either Assad or Turkey or Iran. But then you you look at the all those external players that, that my book's about. It's about those external players. So many countries waded in to try to move the, the Syrian conflict to their favor. The United States, Iran, Russia, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, mm. Israel. Even China. Kind Even of China. Little, exactly. a little bit. Are any of these countries better off as a result of their interventions in Syria? And I would say they're not. You know, some have held their own and they're in a, you know, a, a position that is not really much worse than, than before. But most of them in different ways are worse off. Mm. You know, there, there are no winners at some point. So it's, yeah. it's the war that everyone lost. You advance the notion that Turkey has come off particularly badly. Why, why is that? Well, I think it's it's a long time ago now, but if if we we roll back to the beginning of the conflict, you know, 2011 was was what was then known as the Arab Spring or the Arab uprisings. And at that point, Turkey was viewed both inside the Middle East and outside as this great success story. It was run at the time by Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who's still the, the president now. He was then the prime minister. He had been democratically elected. He'd won two elections. He was seen as this moderate Islamist modernizing Democrat mm. who could bridge this supposed gap between democratic practices and Islamic faith. He was uh, overseeing you know, huge success for Turkey's economy. Turkey, which had been disengaged from the Middle East really for decades, ever since the collapse of the Ottoman Empire in the 1920s, uh, hadn't really been interested in the Middle East. Mm. And Erdogan reversed that. He had this policy called zero problems with neighbors. He, he befriended Bashar al-Assad, in yeah. fact, you know, and was was seen when the Arab uprisings began as this potential model. You know, countries like Egypt, like Tunisia, maybe Syria that were overthrowing their autocratic leaders. And you look at Turkey now, and you know most of the most of those benefits have gone. It's it's got pretty poor relations with its neighbours now. They, they're getting slightly better at the, at the time we're recording, but you know, still nowhere where they were. The economy is free-falling. Yeah. They've had hyperinflation for you know so long. Um, Erdogan himself has really dropped this image of being this, this moderate Democrat. He's actually... Boy, yes. Indeed, indeed. You know, he's, he, he's overseen a significant autocratic turn. And then, you know, they've got domestic problems in terms of the war with the Kurds has not only not only been not been concluded, but it's continued and got worse. Um, and so many of those problems you can link to their involvement in the Syria crisis, you know, the overspill mm. of um, the Syria crisis one way or the other. So what happens if Erdogan is booted out this year. Will that shift things fundamentally? Um, have other parties said what they would do, for example, with the bits that are effectively run 
by Turkey. Will they persist with that policy or will they have a fundamentally different stance mm. towards Syria? Yeah, well, what's happening in Turkey at the moment with regard to Syria is, is, is interesting. So Erdogan himself has suggested he might normalize relations with Assad. Mm. And the reason he said that is precisely because the opposition have said they will. The logic of normalizing the ties with Assad is that will allow them to send some, if not all, of these four million refugees back home, which, as I say, are becoming incredibly unpopular um, because of the, the economic mm. downturn that, that, that Turkey is experiencing. So Erdogan has now said he will do the same, although he's, he's proceeding at a snail's pace. So there have been high-level meetings between, say, the Turkish foreign minister and Syria's foreign minister um, in, in Moscow. But that's about it. We're quite a long way from an yeah, Erdogan-Assad yeah, handshake. Yeah. And one of the key issues, I believe, the differences, to answer your question of what would happen if Erdogan lost the election, is that I can't see a situation whereby Erdogan would abandon those rebel-controlled areas yeah. of Syria, yeah. either the parts of the north, which are effectively Turkish satellites, which were entirely his project, or Idlib, not he doesn't care so much about the people in Lib, Idlib, but he'd be worried that if it fell, there'd be a huge um, influx, influx of, of refugees. refugees. Exactly. Yeah. Now the opposition are more blunt, and they have implied that they would be willing to ditch both because Assad would make that a condition yeah. of um, uh, of reconciliation, and they might be willing to do something quite brutal, which would be. Leave, you know, leave the rebels and Idlib to their fate, and then just close the border and say we don't want any more. And if and if you, you know, uh, so that that might be the difference. Mm. The very big caveat I would say is twofold. Firstly, we don't know if these elections are actually going to take place. Yeah, with the, with the earthquake, yeah, yeah. that may not happen. And secondly, if Erdogan officially loses, he may not give up power. Chris, what does the Assad paradigm mean now going forward? Because I, I genuinely, I can't think of another recent example of a sort of dictatorial figure against whom the whole of the West has turned so uniformly and so vociferously and has then managed to completely ride it out and survive. Doesn't that mean that other people, people like Erdogan, might think, I might try my luck at this. Yes, absolutely. Mm. Uh, absolutely. But I, I, would, I would make the, the, the key shift to me, for me and, and one of the main arguments of my, uh, of my book is that what's unusual but will not be unusual in the future is the shift in the global balance of power. Mm the context in which this occurred. Yeah. You think of other examples of, of, uh, that you described, yeah, dictators that, that stood against the, the West, someone like Saddam Hussein. Yeah. Or key, Gaddafi. Yeah, or Gaddafi. The, the key difference, especially with someone like Saddam Hussein, is that when he challenged the West, the West's power was unparalleled. It was in that moment after the, mm. uh, the Cold War where there wasn't a rival patron to go to. And it's one of the reasons actually why the West dared to turn on Saddam. But that era is over, and it was over actually before the, the Syrian civil war. But the Syrian civil war showed us just what the consequences of that being over were, which was that the West all stood up against Assad. But Assad was never isolated. Assad always retained the support of Russia, always support, retained the, the implicit support of China. Other major countries like India, Brazil, South Africa, 
didn't join the West mm. in, you know, boycotting Assad. You know, some of them evacuated their uh, embassies because of safety concerns, but they weren't saying we don't recognize Assad anymore. So in many ways, it's a little bit like Ukraine now. You have a very strong, confident Western coalition against someone, but it really is just a Western coalition. The difference with, with Syria, you had some Middle Eastern powers as well that were you know, joined in and, and, and played a leading role, um, whereas you don't in the Ukraine war. You absolutely uh, yeah, and, are, I, you know, and I would argue that, yeah. that the, the stack of chips that the West has sort of pushed into the Ukraine mm. situation is significantly higher mm. than it was Ab with Syria. They're absolutely. kind of all in. But, but to go back to, to your initial question, mm. so this scenario, I think, could well play out elsewhere, whereby you get an autocrat who is willing to crush his own people or challenge what, whatever it is that, that Western norms uh, and the West condemns them and, and threatens them and sanctions them and maybe even sort of supports the opposition in some, in some way or the other. But as long as they have some important friends, as long as they can keep some people on side, whether it's the Russians or the Chinese or actually within the Middle East, powerful supporters like yeah, Saudi yeah. Arabia, Qatar, yeah, yeah. Iran, whoever it may be, you can survive. Let us round things off by looking a little bit forward. It's been 12 years. Um, it occurs to me that there are teenagers in Syria at the moment, 15, 16, 17 years old, coming up to adulthood that have never known any other normal than this perpetual conflict. How do we go forward? Is there any kind of resolution inside? Can the international community do something? Can there be, as you ask in the book, rebuilding without reconciliation? Can we kind of, I guess, sort of do a, a Northern Ireland on it, just call it the troubles and see where we are now? And just say, okay, you stay there, you stay there, and we call everything something different. Yeah. Um, I think something like that might be possible in a very implicit rather than explicit way. Uh, and to some extent, it's already happening uh, because what's happening is uh, non-Western governments, especially Middle Eastern governments, are welcoming Assad back and trickles of money and rebuilding are coming, but nowhere near the scale or the amount that you need. But you're right to, to highlight this point and say, actually, something does need to be done. It can't just be left to fester. Actually, the areas that Assad controls might stumble along just about okay mm. um, because you know there is a degree of a functioning state. It's a very poor state. They could really benefit from having Western sanctions lifted, but of course that comes with a huge implicit you know, endorsement of Assad's brutality, which Western governments don't want to do. But that would make a huge difference in just preventing chaos or, or, or more crisis. The bigger problems are the areas that Assad doesn't control, which as you saw with the earthquake um, relief, they don't have um, international support. They, they're entirely reliant on Turkey. And as, we, as, we, as we've been talking about, if the government in Turkey changes, they could be left completely. Um, as a Greek with much experience of Erdogan, um, if, the, if the government in Turkey doesn't change, they might face the same thing anyway. Quite, quite exactly. But it, but it <laughs> if makes he him... thinks he's kind of got over the bump of the election, uh, yeah. 
who knows what he'll do. But but that's one of the issues is that, of course, they're then entirely in, you know, their fate is entirely in Turkey's hands in the same way as mm. the Kurds' fate. And again, I keep saying the Kurds, but it's a Kurdish-dominated yeah. coalition. Um, but their fate is very much in the Americans' hands. Mm. If the Americans, rather like Trump, seemed to tr- tr- Trump suggested he was going to withdraw. And when he did that, uh, Turkey snatched off a huge chunk of territory um, which terrified, you know, the Kurdish-dominated coalition there. That could happen again. You know, look what Biden did with Afghanistan. They're terrified the same thing could happen. They could just withdraw at a moment. So that leaves them very much susceptible to the whims of whoever's in the White House. But I think there's another really key point that you, you touched upon. You talked about young people coming into adulthood that have only known conflict. The really important and worrying demographic that that concerns are the refugees. You know, there are refugees living in Jordan, living in Lebanon especially, who, unlike those in Turkey, for all the complaints that that, that the Turkish population make, many of those refugees in Turkey are able to integrate. Mm. Uh, They're able to go to school there. They're able to get jobs. It's one of the problems. That's why they're getting so much economic resentment. In Jordan and Lebanon, that's not the case. And you've got about one and a half million refugees in total in Jordan and Lebanon. Existing purely within those enclaves. Absolutely. We're living within the enclaves, really, you know, often barred from work or formal work and formally entering the economy. Now, in similar situations elsewhere in the world, in fact, in the Middle East, Mm. you know, lifetime refugees often become radicalized in... um, We're seeing the formation basically of new little Palestine. Well, well, exactly. Yeah. So the great example is the PLO, Mm. you know, you know, both Jordan and Lebanon were destabilized in the 1970s by the presence of lifetime refugees who had known nothing but being refugees and hadn't got the right support from were pretty poor states and they destabilized those states. That could easily happen again in mm-hmm. Lebanon and, and Jordan. But of course, this time it'd be more likely to be Islamic radicals. You know, that is the the, the revolutionary ideology of the day. Uh, and I'm sure that ISIS or their equivalents have recruiters in those areas. And, and who knows, you know, within five, 10 years, that might be where the next radical threat in the region comes from, from those forgotten refugee camps. And there's millions there. Dr. Chris Phillips, thank you so much for a, a very illuminating, if if a tad depressing, conversation. It's better to know, though, right? I hope so. Thank you for having me. Remember, there's a new bunker pretty much every day, so if you like our work, you can and should support our work on the funding platform Patreon for as little as £3 a month. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. I leave you with these words. The Arab Spring is a true phenomenon. Embrace the Arab Spring. Embrace the aspiration for freedom of the people of Egypt, Yemen and Syria. They are the words of Jamal Khashoggi, the dissident Saudi journalist assassinated by Saudi agents four and a half years ago. I think he has earned our attention. This is Alexandro in the bunker saying over and out. Bunker was presented by Alex Andreu. Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis. Group editor, Andrew Harrison. Audio productions by me, Robin Lieber. And the theme tune is by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>